as one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And to the republic for which it stands. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. Well, I'm not a crook. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. One nation under God. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. And you can see the two towers, a huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. Good Lord, there are no words. Indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Title IX, the landmark civil rights law. It marked a watershed moment for women's rights when it passed in 1972. And the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. Legal Anatomy of Current Events, preparing for launch. Legal Anatomy of Current Events, launch sequence started. D-16, IU green to go, propellants pressurized. T-minus 15, legal anatomy of current events. SC ready and green to go. T-minus 14, FOS ready, green to go. T-minus 12, S1C fuel tank pressurized. T-minus 11, SC green to go. Legal anatomy of current events, green to go. T-minus 10, internal power, green to go. LES ready for ignition. T-minus 9, 8, 7, we have ignition. Five, four, commit for launch. Green, three, two, one. We have liftoff. Repeat, we have liftoff. Legal anatomy of current events, all for you. Now on the air, target locked. Hello, America. This is Brad Pollock, brought to you um, by Bell and Pollock, to talk to you about the legal anatomy of current events. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the debt ceiling. Now, some people may say this is a little late to be talking about the debt ceiling uh, as we're, we're discussing it. And we've now had the House and the Senate both pass the debt ceiling, uh, the, the raise in the debt ceiling or in the debt that America can have. But they only have it until January of 2025. I believe it's January, but sometime in 2025. And I can promise you that we're going to be right back at it in 2025 because um, there's a few things we have learned about our government is that, number one, it's always in debt. It's always going to spend more money than it brings in. Um, is that good or bad? We can always talk about that. That might be something that has to be discussed. But we can also talk about the fact that um, our Congress and our legislature and our House of Representatives and our Senate and our president are going to continue to have fights over how the debt ceiling is going to get raised and what we're going to do with the debt ceiling and why. Because they, each one of them sees that as being a, a source of power uh, that they can use and they can yield with the threat of our economy hanging over it. Uh, whether or not any of them will really ever come to the point where they're going to let the catastrophic events that are discussed in the debt ceiling um, or in the failure to raise the debt ceiling, the failure to pay our bills actually come to fruition is something that we have to, um, we have to stop and think about uh, when we go to the polls. 
And maybe it's something that we should add in on our list of what we want to know about a candidate and what we want to know about what they're going to do. But this is not a political show, so we don't get into too much of the politics. Unfortunately, sometimes the topics lead us to the politics. Uh, we currently stand, as I understand it, now I've heard different numbers, but I, as I understand it, in January of 2023, the total national debt and the debt ceiling both stood at $31.4 trillion. That's right, $31.4 trillion. Now, thanks to our uh, um, Mr. Steve Cassidy, we have been able to put this into some kind of uh, uh, way of you understanding what that means. So I want you to envision one grain of salt as being $1. That's Morton salt. He made sure he told me it was Morton salt we were dealing with. One grain of Morton salt being a dollar. And so a pinch of salt, and I don't know what a pinch is, although I have a number of recipes from prior relatives that tell me to put a pinch of salt into the batter. Uh, a pinch of salt is $1,000. If you know, Once again, remember, a grain is a, a dollar. Uh, if we go to $10,000, that's a quarter teaspoon of, of, of salt. For $100,000, we have a tablespoon of salt. For a million dollars, we have a half cup of salt. For a billion dollars, we have a bathtub of salt. That's right, of this Morton salt, a bathtub. Now, once again, don't, don't be calling me or writing me, asking me what size the bathtub is. And uh, for a trillion, we have a classroom full of salt. So when we start talking about $31.4 trillion, we're talking about 31 and a half classrooms. That's some way that maybe you can visualize how much money we're talking about. Now, I've heard a lot of people that are concerned about how terrible our national debt is, and they talk about it in comparison to what it was years ago, and we go back years and years ago. But I do want to have some of you uh, take solace in the fact that our national economy has gotten much larger in those years, too. So I can't tell you the relationship of what it is between our national debt and our national economy is how it's, how it's all come together. But I can tell you that we seem to have what's known as a debt ceiling in, in our country. Uh, why we have the debt ceiling, many people are questioning, and uh, maybe it's to try and put some curbs on Congress and on the president to try to control exactly how much money we spend. It doesn't seem to work, and I would dare say if any of us ran our household like we run our country, we would find ourselves down to the bankruptcy court and probably being told that we're not very good with our money. Um, but the last time I saw, uh, when I was dealing with political, uh, who I was going to vote for, rarely did I understand any of them to want to talk about how much, how good they are with balancing budgets or how good they are with spending money or how good they are in making sure that we bring in more money than we spend. They make all sorts of other promises about how they're going to fund different programs, how they're going to bring us different programs and what they're going to do. And we have to talk about how we pay for that. Now, for most people to understand, the, the, the place that our biggest source of money is usually through the IRS and taxes. That's where we get most of our money. Now, we do borrow money through the issuance of treasury bonds, but what we really deal with in bringing in money is, is, our, is what we can get from taxes. And 
it seems like nobody has a real grasp on what we do with our, our, our what we're going to get from the IRS. So we always have this great uh, deal sitting around that we're going to be able to have um, uh, the ability to borrow money. Should that be a, 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 a matter of last resort? Now, that's, again, is everybody else's uh, decision-making. It's not for me to make that decision. I know what my position would be, but my position doesn't count except as one vote. I would express to you that uh, all of us should be voting, and that's not political. That's just what we should be doing to carry out our patriotic process. But at any rate, how do we come to this? How do we come to these bo- the, the a debt ceiling? How do we come to debt in our country? Why don't we just put together um, a budget that meets within what we're going to raise, how much money we're going to have. Can't we calculate that? Can't we figure that out? Can't we have some way of being able to, to determine what happens in the debt ceiling and what really is going to be um, required uh, uh, for to meet our, our expenses? And can't we get our expenses within the range of what the IRS uh, can collect in taxes so that we can actually uh, stay within a budget and it's funny because we talk about the budget process in the federal government, um, and we understand that the power of the purse is vested in the Congress, as laid down in the Constitution of the United States. That's Article One, Section Nine, Clause Seven, the Appropriations Clause, and Article One, Section Eight, Clause One, the Taxing and Spending Clause. The United States Congress establishes the budget for the government which details how much money will go towards various federal services. This budget may or may may be more than the amount of revenue that the government collects through taxes and other income sources, and, and, and it results in a budget deficit. Whenever you hear de- budget deficit, when it comes from Congress, when it comes from our government, you should understand that means we're borrowing. And the congressional budget process is the means by which the United States Congress proposes and deliberates and adopts the federal budget. We know we have competing sources as far as what people believe should or should not be have money spent on them. Uh, but let's talk about how the process work, works. The president's budget proposal. The process begins with the president when the president submits a budget request for the upcoming fiscal year to Congress. The fiscal year runs from October 1st to September 30th. If you're going to ask me in any way, shape, or form why that's the fiscal year, I don't know. And I am very happy to tell you that a lot of things are mysteries to me when I start trying to research the projects we have on this legal anatomy of current events. But the president's budget is during that fiscal year. The president's budget is typically submitted on the first Monday in February to the Congress. That's right, the first Monday in Fe- first Monday in February. So we have all that time until we get to um, October first to be able to decide how this budget is going to work. It's supposed to include a detailed proposal for all federal programs, except those that are automatically funded, like Social Security and interest on the national debt, because we do have to pay interest on the money we've borrowed in the past. Um, We do have certain automatically funded programs. Understand Social Security has its own bit of funding also because we get extra money held out that is not able to be used for anything but Social Security. And And we're not supposed to be borrowing against that. Um, I've heard differing sources. Some say we have borrowed against it in the past. Some say we haven't borrowed against it in the past. My understanding we have, but we're not supposed to be borrowing from that because that's supposed to be money lent by 
all of us hardworking people who have the money taken out and by our employers who have to match that amount. And it's supposed to be there to take care of us or have funding for us when we decide to retire. And we've heard many proposals that there's not going to be enough money. Um, and I suppose that there's not enough money to pay Social Security, they're going to go out and probably have a fight as to whether or not they're going to raise the budget or the, the, the debt ceiling again, because we can just keep borrowing money. This is something that the government does that I don't think any of the people in the government, and I know most most economists would say you should not do at your house. You shouldn't be doing for your family. You just can't keep saying, well, every year I'm going to go ahead and put together a budget. I know it's going to be more than I earn. I'm just going to borrow more money. And, you know, some people do that, and that's fine if you think you see an end to it or you think you know how it's going to work. Um, I suppose that's why people get lines of credit against their homes or whether they get lines of credit against different assets they have, and they have the access to be able to get the money. But everybody always hopes there's a way down the line that you can pay your bill, and we hope that gets done. But at any rate, the president submits um, this proposed budget. After receiving the, the budget, the House and the Senate budget committees propose a budget resolution. The resolution is supposed to be passed by April 15th, and it's supposed to set overall spending limits, but it does not determine the funding for specific programs. So we've got an overall spending limit that we have, but it doesn't determine what's going to spend in different programs. You can already see the fight that's going to go on between congressional members. The resolution is the blueprint for the appropriation of federal funds. It does not require the president's signature. Remember, the power of the purse sits in Congress. And I know everybody's going to talk about, or you're all thinking about the 14th Amendment. Uh, remember, the 14th Amendment was, was passed in about 1868, and it was a result of the Civil War. It was basically to give freedom to the slaves. Uh, it does talk about how the government's going to pay its debts, but more or less it was a political amendment w with regard to that side of it, talking about how um, the those who were in the North were going to have the bills paid, but this, those who borrowed money for the Civil War to the South, they weren't going to get their bills paid or they weren't going to get their debts paid. So it, it's kind of an odd amendment. I would encourage everybody and anybody who has any interest to take a look at it. I doubt we'll get to it in this show, but um, maybe we'll talk about it later. Uh, then we have Appropriations Committee. Once the budget resolution is agreed upon, the spending totals are divided among the 12 subcommittees of the House and the Senate Appropriations Committees. Each subcommittee then drafts an appropriations bill detailing how funds should be allocated within their jurisdiction. So you've got these 12 appropriations subcommittees that are trying to get money uh, out of the budget over this overall amount that's been de decided by the president and hopefully approved by Congress. So who are the subcommittees? Well, we'll go through them quickly. You have agricultural, which is for rural development, food and drug administration, and related agencies. You have the commerce uh, the, the Justice, Science, and Related Agencies. You have the Defense Subcommittee. Uh, we all know that there's been a, a strong push in the present uh, by our Republicans to, to try to make sure we have enough money for the defense. We have energy and water development. We have financial services and general government. We have homeland security. We have the interior environment, 
environment and related agencies. We have labor, health, and human services, which oversees funding of the Department of Education, which is a big area quite often where there's a lot of fights. We have the legislative branch, which oversees funding for the House of Representatives, uh, the, the U.S. Capitol and Library of Congress and other legislative branches. We have the military construction, veterans affairs, and related agencies that oversees funding for military construction. Once again, a very important area uh, that that we have a a number of fights over. We have state foreign operations and related programs, which oversees funding in the U.S. State Department, uh, obviously. We can understand why there'd be a lot of fighting over that. And we have the Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development, which oversees funding for Department of Transportation, HUD, and related related agencies. So those are the 12. And as we start looking at those 12, we say that's a broad spectrum of the government that we're trying to uh, sort this money out and deciding who's going to get the money. The 12 appropriation bills must be passed separately in both the House and the Senate. Uh, the bills are subject to amendments where legislators can propo- legislators, I'm sorry, can propose changes. Why is that so important? Because we know that now we've already had the legislators determine a total amount that we're going to be able to run our budget on. And now we've got people that want to want to make changes to what the proposed cha- to what the proposals are. Then we have conference committees. Uh, The differences between the House and the Senate versions of the appropriations bills are resolved in a conference committee, which is a temporary committee made up of members from both the House and the Senate. Then we get final passage. Uh, The finalized appropriations bills are then passed again by both the House and the Senate. After passing the the Houses of Congress, the appropriations bills are sent to the president for signing. If the president signs the bills, they become law. If the president vetoes them, they get returned to Congress, where the veto can be overridden by two-thirds majority vote. Nowadays, it's hard to imagine we would have two-thirds majority vote on just about anything. But um, I suppose that would lead us to a situation where, once again, we don't have the budget decided. Now, if all 12 appropriation bills are not signed by the start of the new fiscal year in October, the Congress must pass a continuing resolution to keep the government running. If they don't do this, the government shuts down. What happens when the government shuts down? Well, a lot of people are put out of work. We have a lot less money available for people to be able to spend. We have a lot less money available in the economy because people aren't getting money. What happens when we, don't ha- when we don't raise the debt ceiling to cover the bills that are going to be necessary to keep our government running? We don't have the money to be able to run our country. What happens when we have that problem is we are suddenly don't have enough money to pay our bills. Uh, for those of you who have bought a savings bond, if you've ever bought a savings bond in your life, I want you to understand you made a loan to the government. That's what you did. You depend on that savings bond being something that you get your money back on. Treasury bonds are purchased in large amounts and in small amounts. If you can't get your money back, you're going to be less likely to go buy another savings bond. As a matter of fact, I would think that you're not going to unless you can get maybe double or triple the amount of interest. uh, And and then you start putting the government in a situation where it's got to get even more money to try and pay for this interest. So it becomes a very difficult situation if your budget reconciliation is such that you have to borrow money that you can't get permission to borrow. Because we do normally, 
I think it's been every year that I can recall, we've had to borrow to cover the deficits in our, go- in our yearly budgets. And when the U.S. government spends more money, that's what it has to do. It has to go borrow money. It finances differences by borrowing money through the issuance of the Treasury bonds. Treasury bonds are financial instruments issued by the United States Department of the Treasury. Uh, the investors from around the world buy these bonds. Why do they buy them? Why do you suppose they go buy them? They understand they're buying from a country who isn't even balancing their own budget because they know that they're, it's, it's the strongest form of borrowing they can do. Uh, it, it includes foreign governments, private individuals, corporations. They purchase these bonds, and they know what they're doing is they're lending money to the United States government. Even now, and this show is being brought to you today on the very day that we finally got the Senate to approve raising the debt ceiling. And all we have heard for the last couple of weeks leading up to it is we're in dire circumstances. We're going to be headed for a recession. We're going to be headed for terrible financial matters or, or results and consequences. We can't get anybody to agree. And so we, 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 we hear that. And even in the light of that, all the necessary indexes stayed strong. Our credit rating stayed strong. Everybody continued to want to borrow from the United States uh, and and lend money, in in essence, to the United States. Why would that be? Uh, you've You've got to wonder what's happening and why everybody believes it's so strong. Are these idle threats that we hear? When, when they're saying they're going to raise the debt ceiling, what are they really planning on doing? The U.S. Treasury decides to issue a bond. It determines the amount of the money it wants to borrow and the length of time until the bond will mature. The Treasury bond has a maturity period typically of about 10 years. It can go up to 30 years. When the bond matures, the government promises to pay back the original amount of money and, and, and also the principal and the interest, and then, then people make money. And nobody ever seems to be really worried about this debt ceiling. Uh, they, they get sold at auctions. The treasury bonds are sold at auctions. Uh, they can be bought by individuals, by corporations, by foreign governments, and they are bought by those individuals and corporations and foreign governments. The auction determines the price and the yield of the bond. The U.S. government pays the interest to the bondholders every six months until the bond matures. Of course, if you hold a savings bond, you don't have to do that. You can hold it for a number of years and then turn it in once it matures. And this is a form of income for the investors. At the end of the bond's maturity period, the United States government repays the principal. It seems like a nice, easy process. And it is a nice, easy process as long as the government has money. But it's a never-ending process. And I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it's a never-ending process. It's, it's one where you have kind of like one of those mice on a treadmill that keeps turning, running around in a circle. Because what are you doing? You're, you're forming a budget that needs more money than what you can bring in through taxes and through whatever other sources the government has to bring in money, primarily taxes. Therefore, it has to borrow money. In order to borrow money, it has to keep raising the debt ceiling. In order to raise the debt ceiling, it has to all get together to agree to raise the debt ceiling, recognizing that now we're going to have more interest we have to pay, and we also still have the regular funding we have to do, and also recognizing that we don't have enough money coming in from taxes, and therefore we have to keep borrowing. And the question is, how long does that go? Does it go forever? Every time you hear that we've 
appropriated, and I say we, the United States of America, have appropriated any funds for any project, for anything that goes on, you can bet that there's some kind of borrowing that is being done to, to be able to, to carry it out. The debt ceiling, the total amount of money, is the total amount of money the U.S. government is allowed to borrow and is subject to a limit known as the debt ceiling. The limit is not automatically adjusted for inflation. Pay attention to that because, you know, I, I'll let you in on a little secret that I, I do. I'm, you know, a number of years ago, about 20 years ago, I, I decided I would give each one of my children $250 for a Christmas gift. When I try to determine how much that is now, just by inflation, not by anything else, that $250 is now about $850. And that's how much it is, just from inflation. And we don't have a debt ceiling that adjusts for inflation. And you go, well, you know, that could be a problem. I'm not saying we, it, we, we should or shouldn't. Once again, that's a political decision, but it does not automatically adjust for inflation. Nor does it automatically adjust for the amount of money that Congress appropriates in the budget. I just went through the budget process for you. I went through it rather quickly, but you can slow down the tape and listen to what we're talking about. But I, I can tell you that we've got this process where Congress appropriates money in the budget, and we don't just automatically have the debt ceiling raised to make sure we pay all the money. Instead, the debt ceiling is a dollar amount that can only be changed by legislative action by Congress. So therein lies the problem or the benefit or the difficulties or the, the, the opportunities. But we start getting people who start trying to hold our government hostage. And what I mean by holding them hostage is they start saying, we're not going to agree to raise the debt ceiling and we're going to let all these dire consequences fall on the American people unless you give me this or you give me that. And I don't care which party it is. I'm just saying that's what, in essence, happens. And we need to be able to talk about uh, how that maybe someday can be put to rest. We know it's going to come back up in, in 2025. If there's any of you who does not believe that, then I would encourage you to look at how many times we've had debt ceiling problems before. When the, debt, when the Treasury reaches the debt ceiling and can no longer issue new debt, it can resort to extraordinary measures to keep paying the government's bills for a short period. These measures might include suspending the issuance of new debt for certain government funds, redeeming existing debt, or moving money between accounts. Um, we understand one of the big issues here was taking COVID money, which I think was in the millions, and trying to bring it back in that had been appropriated for at emergency funds for COVID, and we want to bring it back in to pay some of this debt ceiling, pay some of the national debt that we're putting together on our budget. But we do know that that's an area where we, we start trying to then find money to pay the bills. If the extraordinary measures are exhausted and Congress hasn't acted to increase the debt ceiling, the Treasury would be unable to pay all the government bills. And that's known as, we all know that, as the, the wonderful word of default. And when you default on something, what's going to happen? Normally, you're going to get sued. Normally, your credit rating is going to go down. Normally, your financial position is not going to be as good. And it's going to lead to serious repercussions for your own personal economy if you default on something. And only appropriately, it also results in reper repercussions for the U.S. economy. And in this 
situation, it would also be a, a re- result in repercussions to the global financial system. It would lead to a spike in interest rates, a fall in the value of the dollar, and a financial crisis, uh, something we don't want. Now, so it, it strikes fear in everybody, and I am certain that there were probably well in excess of a million, maybe a trillion, maybe a, bath, uh, a classroom worth of salt of calls that were made by investors to their investment counselors over this last week saying, do you think it's for real this time? Do you think it's for real that they're really not going to raise the debt ceiling? And if so, what's going to happen and how's it going to happen and what's going to, what's going to occur? Congress has historically acted to raise the debt ceiling when necessary. Uh, we hope we can, deten- we can depend on our, our, our congressmen and our congresswomen and the people who are in the, running the government that they're going to be fiscally responsible. But the question I have, once again, I'm not trying to say good or bad, but the question I have is how can you have a feeling that your congressperson or your president, or anybody else, and I'm not talking Republican or Democrat, I'm talking all of them, how can you have a feeling that they're going to be fiscally responsible when the very budget they set already is more than they're going to bring in? Look at yourself in the mirror, look at your spouse, look at anybody you're dealing with, and tell me if you think they're fiscally responsible if they have a budget for their lives that is more than the money they can bring in. Now, maybe on a temporary basis, that's okay. Maybe on a temporary basis, that occurs. But what is the situation when we start having ourselves in finances where we know we're going to have to borrow more money and we don't have any plan to really reduce the debt? I'm not, once again, trying to strike out anybody because all the parties do it, all the presidents do it. Everybody just believes that's a way of doing business. And it seems like what they do is they just put us all in a situation where we can all wonder if our investments, if our savings, if, our, if the value of our dollar is going to be uh, toyed with by not um, passing a debt or by not raising the, the debt ceiling. Uh, what I can tell you is, is that once again, I think it's, this is an issue that I never see come up in, in, the, in the political process. I never see anybody holding somebody responsible for the fact that they didn't vote within the budget. Should that be something you should consider? Once again, I, I can't determine your politics for you, but I can tell you that it's something that lurks there every time. One of these days... One of these days, somebody's not going to raise that debt ceiling. And when they don't raise that debt ceiling, we're going to have a problem, and we're going to have to deal with it, and we're going to have to determine how we're going to deal with it. But before we go, I have the American idiom, uh, which are common phrases to say no money, broke, short on cash, bankrupt, not a dime to my name, strapped for cash, lacking funds, empty wallet, penniless, Poor house, barely making ends meet. Things are pretty tight. Money is tight, living paycheck to paycheck or down and out. Now, notice none of those American idioms that have been around for a long time uh, come up with saying, I need a loan really bad. (laughs) 
So I want you to start thinking about the fact that getting loans doesn't mean that you don't, that, that you have money. It still may very well mean you have no money. You've been listening to The Legal Anatomy of Current Events. I'm Brad Pollock of Bell & Pollock.